Hey, welcome to the Worship Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Perigo, and this is a space where we just want to dig deep into worship and particularly thinking about, um, yeah, the theological issues surrounding Christian worship. Uh, my guest today is Reverend Associate Professor Dr. Daniel Thornton. He's the head of School Pathways, Arts and Business at Alpha Crucis University College in Australia. I've known Daniel for, yeah, maybe almost 10 years now at different conferences, but it's the first time I've had you on this podcast. So welcome, Daniel. It's great to have you. Thanks, Jeremy. I'm, I'm thrilled. I was so excited when you uh, suggested it and really looking forward to our time together. Well, I read your, yeah, I read your monograph, you know, or you kind of that drew from, I think, some of your dissertation probably about a year ago, but just haven't had the time to find time where, since we're about 12 hours apart, that where we both can do this. So, so excited that um, he's live from Australia. I'm here in the Midwest, Iowa. But Daniel, I'd love to know what initially drew you to studying worship music, part of your role at the college and uh, the university college and also at in, in scholarship and your writing is around the study of Christian worship music, congregational song. What what initially drew you to studying that academically? Yeah. Uh, so um, I grew up in a an independent, uh, charismatic Pentecostal church that came out of the charismatic renewal of the 70s. My parents were pastors. Uh, and so music and especially contemporary music from my youngest age was a part of our expression of worship. Um, I and my parents very quickly realized that there was something of a musical capacity within me. So I started lessons on piano and ended up at the conservatorium high school. So I, suddenly I ended up in two kind of quite divergent spaces. One, a very mm. classical, uh, you read the music, play all of the Bach, Beethoven, whoever, Tchaikovsky, yeah. Rachmaninoff. Um, and, and, <laughs> Get them all in there. <laughs> and then on the other hand, uh, you know, a very spontaneous, very uh, um, a, a lot of sort of jazz influence uh, because there was so much um, uh, that you, you, you were just doing on the spot in, in, our, in yeah. the kinds of worship context that I was in growing up. So I was learning these quite different, ways of musicking. Um, and, and I think I've taken those with me along the journey. I was a worship pastor at a number of churches, a number of Pentecostal churches for uh, almost 20 years before coming to Alpha Crucis and, and really um, turning what was my practical world and my spiritual world uh, of, uh, of worship and of facilitating worship and of writing composition was, was my major at the conservatorium. So all of that felt so beautifully culminated in turning that into scholarship. Um, and, but e even so I'm fairly late to that picture. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I know we're not going to talk a ton about your kind of musical background, but you are a worship leader. You've recorded lots of songs, stuff's out there. You've also had, again, kind of that formal and also spontaneous informal tradition. You've had stuff played by premier ensembles in Australia, right? So, I mean, you've you've kind of done the music side of things. Again, we're going to look a lot more at the kind of worship and your your research. But for those that are listening, Daniel's got musical chops. He's not just a scholar. He's a scholar who can who can lead and play too. And and even though Pentecostalism has been my my church context and my worship context, um, I absolutely love all the old hymns. I've I've done a few hymns albums, and in fact, the most uh, engaged with recording I have ever done, which is I think now over two million views on YouTube, was up from the grave he arose. Wow. So nothing, wow. nothing original, just nothing original. My, my or... cover, my version of that, which I just find, uh, yeah, interesting. It's. It's interesting how something, particularly as more independent artists or those who aren't behind a major label, what what actually lands, what actually hits, and what doesn't. Um, sure. <laughs> that that may come as we talk about YouTube and listeners and things like that it, later in the conversation. That may come come back around again. You've been a part of so many different worship contexts, but just for listeners to get to know a little bit who who you are, would you just share a, a significant moment in corporate worship that, that comes to mind? Yeah. Um, one of the most profound moments that sticks in my mind still is when we had a, a prophetess come to our church, Helen I. Visevich. 
I don't know where she is these days. Um, and and I was, I must have only been, I was still in my teens, 18, 19, mm. uh, and I had just been made the music director of our church and wow. and I was worshipping in, in that context. And I remember there was just this moment where I was still playing on a grand piano, which is pretty rare these days in a church context. It's quite nice when we do have them. It's beautiful. I love it. Um, and I remember uh, being so caught up in this moment of being so aware of the presence of God and that God was doing something uh, profound. And uh, and and I, I remember feeling like I just couldn't stop playing. And I was actually just kind of, um, it, I wasn't playing a song. I, it was, I was just... Um, uh, tremoloing on, you know, chords just, just yeah. within all of this worship that was happening around me. And in that moment, I, I just suddenly felt like uh, I, I could have been standing there in heaven. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. No, that's that's so beautiful. I, I, I've, yeah, had some of those moments myself where, yeah, there's that improvised music where there's a leader who's helping kind of bring the congregation into that moment too by by hospitably in, inviting them to to join in and press into God it really can be like heaven on earth um, which is yeah how in some ways how some people define orthodox communities define worship as heaven heaven on earth I'd love to dig into your 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 research just just a little bit for the the rest of the podcast and one one of the books you've written is called meaning making in contemporary congregational song right what's what's at the core of that i know some of the nomenclature <laughs> the the cost of the book may be challenging for yep. you know pastoral worship leaders or even 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 masters and undergrad students but if you'd give us just a window what's what what are you trying to to, to do in that book um, around meaning making and what are you kind of uh, trying to analyze there? Sure. And yes, look, it's it's not a popularly <laughs> published book. It is an academic book. So, you know, it's, it's not the easiest thing to read, although hopefully quite a bit easier to read than my thesis. Uh, definitely <laughs> try, you know, when you write a thesis, to... it's for three people, uh, your markers. But, uh, you know, when you write a book, you're, you're trying to engage a broader audience and it was updated. And so, so there's definitely reasons to read yeah. the book over my thesis. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, hey, look, if you can't get hold of it and you you would like to just reach out to me. <laughs> uh, there are ways, and um, but also I've a lot of that research I've made in, uh, put into far more digestible forms in, in yeah. blogs yep. and in um, you know online uh, uh, vlogs and different things. So, um, and here we are talking about it right here, now. Here we are. So. That's, gives me gives me a reason for this podcast yeah. too. So uh, it, it was uh, developed from my thesis and um, meaning making in the contemporary congregational song genre. So meaning making, it's a particular term in in academia uh, around semiology, which is the study of science and study of meaning making. So, uh, you know, a a word can be a sign, um, a sound can be a sign, and you've got the, the people who make that and the people who um, have some sense of what they mean when they make that, when they write that yeah. word or create that sound. Or, um, then you have the sound itself. Like what it, uh, if you, if you took away people, do, is there meaning that's, that's in the sign itself apart in, from in the sound, it's, the, yeah. the creator yeah. or apart from the receiver, maybe that you can argue for or against it. But, and then of course there's the individual level of meaning making that, that, uh, you know, when I when you listen to the the same song I listen to, we we might like some of the same things about it. We might I might like it, you might not like it. This is the individual capacity of not just preferences, but how we interpret that. It can be a very individual thing. And so uh, I was using a particular model uh, framework, academic framework, uh, music semiology, which tries to find those meaning making. Uh, processes in the creators, in the source itself, in this case, the song, and in those who are engaging with that song, so congregation. So that's the, that's the broad overview. So as you kind of analyze these songs, and, and we'll start to talk about some of those songs and what they are in just a moment, but you were, you were thinking about 
what was the creator's intention? Why did they write these songs? What are what are the songs themselves, both lyrically, musically? How the, how uh, the ensembles even maybe recording them mm-hmm. and but then uh, and publishing them. Kind of there's a lot to the actual song, but then also how are then you know those who are listening to those, those who are receiving those songs. Is that is that right? Kind of all those different kind of three levels. Yeah, yeah, which is quite an undertaking and, and uh, probably bit off more than I could chew. Um, and, and, of course, you there's uh, to, to get to the producers of many of these songs can be difficult. I, I've had a long history with Hillsong. I was uh, a, a right very early on I was a lecturer at Hillsong College and still do some guest lecturing for them. They um, are connected to us as a college um, so certainly had connections there, but in the US, I, I really didn't, um, very grateful for making some of the connections in the UK, but you know, I, I think the industry as a whole can be a bit of a, a black box for people like who's making decisions, who, who's really in yeah. control, what's their agenda. Um, so, you know, I, as best as I could, I, I tried to go to the, the sources, the songwriters themselves and, uh, and have interviews in that space. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of fun. I would like to keep doing it. <laughs> well, well, a, a number of guests I've had on here, friends, mutual friends and colleagues of ours, we've talked a lot about how CCLI and some of those studies around them of, of that are kind of the most sung songs. I'm doing using air quotes now because it <laughs> depends on how those are used and reported. Um, you, you, yeah, you bring that into your, your study too in different ways, but you also talk a lot about um, YouTube and particularly around YouTube listens. And I guess I'm curious, why did you choose to study s- the songs based on kind of their YouTube listens and things like that? How does that kind of reshape that conversation of, of, of songs popularity? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a good question. And, and I am absolutely, uh, utilizing CCLI, um, lists. In fact, I've just, uh, just next to me, I've got a screen with, uh, all of the CCLI lists dating back to, well, a long time ago. Um, just so that, <laughs> I, you know, I could refer to them if we needed to, um, from, from the U S from Australia, from Singapore, from the UK, from, yeah. yeah. Um, kind of all the places that, that, Keep those lists. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And I, which was, is important to note too. Can I yeah. can I throw that out just for listeners? Like sometimes we say the CCLI top one hundred. Often that can be very American centric. Yes, um, and even that Australia, UK, Singapore actually, yeah, sometimes have very similar songs, but actually sometimes have a number of songs that are completely different. There's a Graham Kendrick and Stuart Town and things that show up in the UK that would ne- most yes. American churches wouldn't know. And there's probably Australian songs, things that, that would end up there. And so it's important to know that they are different based on different nations too, in and of themselves. Absolutely. Demographics. I was on the CCLI advisory council for our region, Asia Pacific for many years and still have a, a really good connection with, uh, with many of the people there. Um, and, uh, and so I was quite aware of the global. We would get reports uh, even before they were sending the you know top two thousand songs to to copyright owners, which they do every payout period. Every six months, there's another report. Um, so I was really privileged to be sort of on the inside of a lot of information that CCLI had uh, for a long time, and and I have found that tremendously valuable in in my research, and and I. I understand its limitations that at the end of the day, it is skewed by number one, the churches that actually report. So there's a whole bunch of churches that have a license, but don't report the songs they're singing. So then it's not reflective of them. Now, now statistically they get a good return. So, so it's, it's not unrepresentative, but still, um, larger churches and certainly those who are producing contemporary congregational songs of course, they've, they've got a, a vested interest in, uh, in in reporting those and ensuring that they're reported. And larger churches are paying more and their for their license. And yeah, the, absolutely. So the, the influence of their reporting is also increased. Um, yeah. So yeah, I absolutely understand the limitations of it, but it, it's the best we have at knowing 
en masse, you know, across the US or across the or across the globe, once you start to put all these things together, what are the songs that are most impacting uh, contemporary Christian worship uh, around the globe? So I've I think that's brilliant. Uh, more study needs to be done in that space. And it's a good point that you make about the differences between some of those uh, regions uh, yeah. because yeah. there are definitely songs that are global. There's a, a good portion, maybe half the songs on, on any list are at, um, the other lists, you know, the, that are on US or on the UK or on Australia or in Canada, whatever. But you absolutely get a, a kind of... Um, <laughs> what do you call it? People like their own stuff. There's, uh, yep. <laughs> so the U.S. are singing more songs from the U.S. Australians are singing more songs from Hillsong or from Australia yeah. uh, and the U.K., yeah. like you said. Yeah. What What about your, oh. your choice to kind of draw in this idea around also bringing kind of <laughs> YouTube listens or streams and the importance of that? Because I think that is – yeah, it's something nuanced or different than a number of our friends, colleagues who are studying this area. And kind of why, why did you choose that? But also why why might that be important? Yeah. So what CCLI doesn't tell you is how individual Christians are engaging with songs. It tells you how churches are engaging with songs. And we know that it's not like most churches have some kind of democracy in the songs that they're singing on a Sunday. A select few people, maybe the worship pastor or, you know, a few worship leaders or maybe one of the pastoral staff, senior pastor might want to have input into that. But there's actually a select few people in a congregation who are making the decision of we're going to sing this song and not that song. And so as, as wonderful and helpful as CCLI is, I was also interested in individual Christians' engagement. Does that mirror the decisions that are being made by those in authority in churches or is it different? Um, and, and if so, how is it different? So YouTube, because it's, uh, you know, it was the first major free video streaming service, at, um, you know, uh, whenever it was first introduced around 2006, 2007, didn't really come to the fore until 2008, people started paying attention to it. And then for, for quite a number of years, um, record labels and certainly Christian uh, producers kind of uh, tried to ignore it essentially because it wasn't <laughs> making much money for them. Yeah, it wasn't making the money. <laughs> but, um, and, you, you know, many producers could request to take down things that fans have uploaded, but, you know, you just can't employ enough people to take down things that people around the globe are uploading it, you know, at, at hundred times the, all the time. Yeah, yeah hundred. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so it, it, for me, it became uh, you know it, it it was a free resource for people. So it, it wasn't gated by uh, um, you know people needing to pay for the service. Um, so it, it was the best reflection I could possibly get of what individual Christians were doing with songs. And so, uh, and apart from that, it, then it, it wasn't just that people were engaging with songs in that space. People were then using that as a primary source for finding songs. Uh, and so that, that whole uh, dynamic fascinates me as well. How do you think, like, you know, I, I know this isn't quite the focus of your your research, but as I was reading back through it and thinking about YouTube and worship song, how do you think YouTube has shaped Christian worship or Christian worship music? Yeah, well, I actually, I did a, an article on this, uh, and again, an academic article. Um, uh, one of the things that's talked about in media studies is, is this idea of mediation. That is, there's a medium uh, through which, um, which is uh, the medium is the message is such a classic, uh, uh trope yeah. for, for that space. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I've been interested in, in how that medium does impact our engagement with songs. And, and so I was looking at the most sung songs and, and what they look like, how they're presented to us. And, about 10 years ago, that was mostly in lyric videos and it was mostly in fan-created lyric videos. Mm -hmm. 
in fact, some of the older songs that are still top of the CCLI charts, their most viewed versions on YouTube are still those versions that were uploaded in, you know, 2008, 9, 10. Um, for example, um, 10,000 Reasons, uh, you know, the things like Here I Am to Worship or um, Lord, it's, I Need it's You. It's not by the label, right? It's not by the artist or the label. No. It's just a Christian, someone somewhere that created their own lyric video, put it up there. And, it, and you know, they've got millions yeah. of streams, even, <laughs> even more than the official one. I remember you showing these videos. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, because be low production quality sometimes. <laughs> oh, sometimes it's awful. There's glitches in the audio. There's, you know, there's random things on the screen. It's starting with some scripture that just has no bear. <laughs> Nothing to do with it. <laughs> but it's kind of the beauty of the early stages of YouTube. I mean, it, you weren't just consuming it. You could produce it. Yeah. Um, and, and people did. And, and, and I think one of the beauties video has long uh, succeeded audio as the musical, the dominant musical medium. So, you know, way, way back, Video Killed the Radio Star, MTV, all that was kind of shifting way back in the 80s and, and 90s, but, uh, but YouTube created a completely different version of that where, number one, it's global, number two, anybody can produce, so it's not just those in authority or those with money who can produce. Um, mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so the, I, I think YouTube's a really fascinating place of consumption and presumption and um, engagement. So the original videos were mostly uh, lyric videos. Then a, a, a few producers started to cotton on that this was just going to be the place people went to. So they started putting up, uh, their recordings of, of songs. And, of course, Hillsong was so on the front foot with that because they'd been recording live worship videos from back in 1993. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. In, People had them v VHS. They probably even had Beta, which yeah. was the other one in the U.S. <laughs> they were probably old enough that you could get you could get either on, and then DVDs. on the different formats, the PAL formats or NTC or whatever, all those, yeah. Yeah, and then DVDs, and then, so in yeah, many yeah. ways uh, they were poised to be able to put so much content up on YouTube, and they were still a bit tentative in that process. But of course, in more recent times, we've shifted uh, from even that, which was live recorded, but it is so much post production, and you know, you, yeah. whereas. Uh, especially during COVID, that's shifted again, and there's live, uh, and still with a. Uh, a significant degree of live post-production, um, yeah, often yeah. mixed for video, often vocals tuned, and there's some yeah. terrible examples of where that's not been done well. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, we watch some of those worship videos on YouTube where, you know, the tree falls on the drummer or the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the drummer you know, throws a stick at the worship leader. Why is it always drummers? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's definitely changes that are happening in that space that I, I think are shaping our the way we think about worship songs and the way that we engage with them. Mm -hmm. What What do you think as you as you particularly these these congregational songs that become really popular on YouTube? Like what What do you think makes it? successful or are, are there any ways to even predict success as you've you've kind of studied these like yeah what 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 makes it consumable is there anything musically or theologically or the artist i'm i'm curious yeah well of course if producers could have a, a magic mirror that told them what yeah. was going to uh, sell <laughs> i'm sure they would use it and one of the things that I discovered when I talked to a lot of the writers, I asked them about success and, and, you know, were there songs that they had written that they thought would be more successful than they ended up being uh, in terms of the CCLI charts or, or on YouTube? And often the answer was yes. Like there were songwriters who felt that they had written better songs than the song that ended up, that everyone ended up singing. Uh yeah, which is uh, an interesting sort of idea in, in and of itself. So I, I think 
on the one hand, there are mechanisms that create the opportunity for a song to take hold. So um, if you've got a million subscribers to your channel, uh, for <laughs> Hillsong or Bethel or Elevation, whoever it might be, yeah. um, already there is a platform that creates the potential for a song to go beyond that. Now, not all songs do. Songs are engaged with it at vastly, in vastly different ways, even on a given channel. Um, but there is something, even before YouTube, that occurred, certainly in Australia, I don't, I, I'd be interested in the US, but that occurred primarily through conferences. So Hillsong Conference back in the day in, in early, throughout the 90s, was the place that uh, so many churches came to and, amongst other things, learnt the latest songs from the album, bought the CD and the DVD and the sheet music and took it back to their church yeah. to teach their songs. Yeah. Uh, same in the US. I can re- I- I can remember that. Yeah, I mean, particularly it may have not been Hillsong, but other major players at that time. Integrity. There was Clint Brown in Orlando. Some other small independent groups that they would record a new album at their conference. Often, this was very, yes. com- you know, um, they'd record a new album, have the have the charts there that you could buy. Yep. And so honestly, I can remember sometimes the next Sunday, even before the album's out, <laughs> we're doing those we're doing those new songs because we all just experience them as a worship team together in at this conference. And so then it even prepared those songs when the albums did come out. Church people knew them, so they bought the albums, we sang them again. And so yeah, I mean, I know like Tom Wagner, particularly on Hillsong, and even Tanya at Riches have looked at that kind of how particularly as they grew as a movement started to um, use that mechanism to help market songs, get them out there. But I mean, the reality on the other side is that it's it's a part of these networks that like they're not denominations in the sense of like, we've got this hymnal, here's the 200 hymns you need to sing. Yeah. But they are sharing these songs through their relational networks, which is often at, at, at conferences. And so, yeah, I think that that continues to happen. But particularly, I can remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was the primary way. This was even before YouTube or Spotify. And so you learned a new song by experiencing it at that church or at a, a conference they were they were playing. Yeah. At. And and the the very nature of the experiential engagement with that song that is you you're not listening to it in isolation you're not you you are in the middle of worshiping god and and you're learning a new song and therefore the kind of encounter that you have with god the kind of experience you have in worship all plays into whether you like that song and whether you you, you so want to take that song back to your church because it just had such an impact on you uh, and i think in one sense youtube does shift that because songs are in isolation you you're not you're sitting at your desk or you're sitting at home or on the train and and you are perhaps getting a window into someone else's worship live worship context but um it, it is it's a different space to where we were learning songs 20 years ago yeah, absolutely. I'd I'd love for you. Um, you you talked a little bit about your methodology, the semiology. Like, um, I'd love you to take us through maybe one of the songs. Um, you do this in your book with with a lot of those, but maybe just again briefly give take us through one of these really popular songs and you know summarize kind of these different areas of of meaning that you're that you're unpacking. Are you you up for doing that? Yeah, for sure. Love to. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, I think I'd have to do What a Beautiful Name, uh, Hillsong, written by Brooke Ligertwood. <laughs> so annoying yeah. when people get married and change their names. I don't know how to say them anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and Ben Fielding. Uh, so coming out of Hillsong back in 2016, 2017. And the reason why I would talk about that is not just because it comes from Australia. That's, that's nice. But, um, <laughs> but it is the most engaged contemporary congregational song video on YouTube ever. Mm, ever. There's wow. 500 and I don't know the latest count, 515 million views, something like that. Half a billion views. Uh, now, even, even the most 
popular other worship songs. So, you know, if, if we think at the moment, Goodness of God's been at the top of the US yeah. charts and before that, you know, Build My Life, Waymaker, um, yeah, Reckless Love just inched in there in 2018. So all of these might have certainly have millions, some some hundreds of millions, but but not, not even close, <laughs> not half a billion. <laughs> so so that that interests me anyway. What is it about this? And even no other Hillsong uh, worship song has that many views. So what mm. is it about? What a beautiful name. Yeah. Uh, so I think firstly, just thinking about the writers, it, this didn't come from nowhere. Uh, you know, Brooke and Ben are, are seasoned writers. Uh, Brooke really came to prominence in the worship space with Hosanna. Hosanna, yeah. Hosanna, which was, uh, yeah, like 16 years ago now. Um, and, and massively popular, has sat in the, you know, near in the top 25 for a very, very long time. Um, so already a, a very talented, gifted songwriter and clearly someone who's able to connect with people. Then you've got Ben and, and interestingly, when I did my uh, my monograph, uh, besides Matt Redman, Ben was the only other writer who had four songs in the top 25. And Matt, I mean, Matt has had a whole nother decade beyond Ben. Ben's, you know, a lot younger. And, uh, yeah. But, you know, the, the um, This I Believe, uh, yeah, I can't think of the rest off the top of my head, but you can, they're easy to look up. Uh, songs that are mass, like sung globally at every, it, almost every <laughs> church at some point is sung at, at least in their youth group or, or something. Yeah. yeah. So... In one respect, you would go, of course, what a beautiful name is is going to have a, a great chance of connecting with people, um, and connecting with churches. Look, uh, <laughs> there's something in the theology there that is perhaps particularly appealing to a broad range of, of Christian traditions and expressions. Yeah. Uh, typically in the CCLI list, we see slower songs than faster songs because slower songs are easier to produce in a, in a bunch of different contexts. Uh, even if a far- kind of reproduce easier to play, like you don't have to have great drummers or great bass player. Like yes, oh yeah, and you don't need to know yeah. the lick. What's what's the little lick that they're doing in yeah. the? Oh, I the- figure, can I play it in the key that my vocalist can play it in? <laughs> All of these questions. So I think that's yeah. fascinating as well. Just that uh, because it's not that faster songs uh, can't necessarily work in in a bunch of different contexts. And, and I, I think the, the one song that we see that uh, again, has just sat in the charts for, for so long that is on the faster side is this is amazing grace, mm-hmm. uh, Phil Wickham. And, uh, and because it's pretty easy to just stand there with an acoustic guitar or, or on a piano and, and yeah. reproduce that in a way that doesn't feel forced or, yeah. Empty. Or, yeah. 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 And I think the lyrics match, I mean, both the theological content, what you were starting to allude to earlier, like is broadly, yeah, broadly evangelical, even make it broader, Christian, like Christian, mm-hmm. like about the death, resurrection of Jesus. And, well, I mean, yeah, so, we're not going to talk about that song, but if we were, <laughs> uh, of course, even just the the use of Amazing Grace there is, is, uh, that's not random. I have absolutely no doubt that part of the reason that that song has connected so broadly is this adoption of uh, lyrics that are of amazing grace that are already accepted across Christianity. Well, again, we're not talking about this song today, but a presentation that I saw a couple months ago in the states at a conference went traced the history of Amazing Grace. And landed at Phil Wickham saying, "No, no, no! This is amazing. <laughs> this is amazing grace." Which, uh, again, not a great song. I use it all the time. Not, 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 not trying to tear down Phil Wickham and others who are a part of that, but also, yeah, there is something about is is this saying it's the climax of this great hymn that was written. Um, 
Probably not, but maybe. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and look, I mean, we're there. So just, just for a moment, I, I think this is an interesting uh, transition in the contemporary congregational song genre's evolution. Um, and that is that uh, the songs that we were singing in the 70s and 80s, the original songs that were coming out of Pentecostal charismatic context mostly, um, they they were a swing away from traditional hymnody. Uh, you know, they were very simple songs, uh, both lyrically and musically, because uh, you didn't have even overhead well, you, maybe you had an overhead projector with a little acetate. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah maybe, maybe. But, uh, and, and oh, man, there's so many directions my brain is going in. Just for the record, What a Beautiful Name has, in the when I was writing, had the most words of any contemporary congregational song in the list. Um, so just thinking how far that evolution has come from yeah, this from is the day, the this day, is yeah, the day. Yeah. <laughs> Or I exalt thee, I exalt thee, I exalt thee. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but amazing grace. All right. So so there was such a swing away from traditional hymnody that even sort of the idea of using those words for some was kind of, no, we don't want to go back there. But actually as a new generation of writers came through uh, um growing up with contemporary worship, uh, there wasn't the same baggage of the old. And, and, and songs, and especially when Chris Tomlin brought out, uh, this is Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone, uh, yeah. this was the, in some ways the, the floodgate for let's reconnect the old and the new uh, and, and you end up with a lot of songs uh, that uh, have, have tried to do that. Mm-hmm variously successfully and i think this is amazing grace even if even if it wasn't inspired by amazing grace my chains are gone it it still to me speaks to the evolution of the genre well yeah i think what you're highlighting like it's pointing back to the tradition like this tradition of great music that maybe the early adopters of contemporary congregational song were trying to divorce themselves from or they were being kicked kicked out because of their charismatic <laughs> experience. And I can I can think of some of those like those yeah Jesus movement songs that are very simple from Calvary Chapel or even some of the vineyard. Um, well some of those people chose to leave those other mm-hmm. denominations and others were forced out. Yep. And, I mean in, in conversion studies often that first generation is trying to be not like what they're converting from or moving from, even if it's within the same same tradition. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's interesting to think now that we're at second, third, maybe even fourth generation of of kind of contemporary writers that they are drawing from from the larger tradition mm-hmm. um, of, of congregational song and, and hymnody. Yeah. On, on the on the what a beautiful name is there is there is there any Anything else on that kind of method that you take that that you'd want to yeah you'd want to highlight? Yeah, so I think one of them is just the fact that it's focused on Jesus, and uh, typically across contemporary worship uh, songs, Jesus is the perhaps the least controversial of the Trinity to uh, to write a song about, because of course songs on the Holy Spirit are, are going to be you know polarizing, um, no matter what. Uh, and songs about the Father, well, you know, we have had a few songs uh, that specifically reference the Father, um, Good, Good Father, <laughs> um, yeah. as an example. But but I think in our Western world, fatherhood has taken such a, a beating over 30, 40 years, maybe it's longer, um, that I think we have... we can have a bit of a challenge with, even though Jesus said true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So, so even Jesus points us to worshipping the Father. But uh, but I think in our, certainly in our Western contemporary world, uh, that can have some challenges. Um, so, so what a beautiful name's about Jesus, clearly about Jesus. And that works just for, for so many denominations, for so many contexts. Uh, the the simplicity of the chorus always helps. Nice and it's a catchy song. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. Um, 
the simplicity, you know, even though um, songs, CCS, have been progressively more detailed in production and, you know, uh, not so much in harmony, we're still sticking with one, six, four, five. And, in fact, in this song we are. Yeah. Um, one, yeah, five, yeah. six, four. What a beautiful name is one, da-da-da-da-da, five, da-da-da, six, four. Uh, mm. But and melodically... These songs are as simple as nursery rhymes. I did the intervallic uh, analysis of, uh, to, and and even though rhythmically they're more complex than nursery rhymes, yeah. uh, often syncopated and in some way, yeah. but intervallically they're nursery rhymes, <laughs> or at least yeah. yeah. So they're very easy to learn, very easy to sing, um, and even though there's so many words in this song that the most words of, of any in that top list. Uh, again, the chorus is is a place to land um, and the simplicity of that chorus, I think, um, allows people to perhaps no longer focus on screens and, uh, and just uh, focus in on Jesus. Just some of the reasons why I think that song's been so popular. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for taking us through that. Like, I you 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 have this quote that kind of connects on the industry and the local church, which are some of the themes that we we haven't quite dialed in on, but have been in the background of our conversation. You write this: contemporary congregational songs are firmly entrenched in both a global industry and in the local church. They straddle the commercial world and the world of ministry. And I I may end up footnoting this and something I'm <laughs> I'm right writing which is why it's fresh on my mind um, about this I, some scholars really make a big deal about the power of the industry um, and maybe minimize or ignore the local church and then some some who are writing for the local church even if they're well-known artists really talk about the spirits using this song all over the world and are ignoring this massive industry <laughs> or the 100 million <laughs> subscribers or listeners <laughs> or people in their network. Can you uh, unpack a little bit of, of why you're kind of talking about this straddling of, of these two, two movements and kind of what led you to maybe, maybe think in those categories? Yeah. Uh, so our Christianity is not devoid or not separated from our culture. It's always our Christianity, our, our faith is always constructed within the broader culture in which we exist um, for better and for worse, some perhaps often more for worse. But <laughs> we, we can't, we, we just conceive our faith within our broader world. Um, and, and so a, 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 commercial world that exists around us, um, of course, was going to have some kind of uh, correlation or some kind of infusion into uh, the our, our spiritual world. Um, so the music industry existed before contemporary congregational songs were starting to be written. Um, it, it, so the fact that an industry arose up around the production of CCS, it, it, of course it did. Uh, that's the Western world we live in. <laughs> and that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean it's good or bad. It's just saying it's a reflection of our broader culture. Now, now it, <laughs> there, I think there are complexities with that. Um, and I remember back when I was first starting to write uh, worship songs of my own that we were talking about, you know, do we just give these away? There was a, before CCLI came along, there was this great movement of is, has God given us this song to make money from, or has God given us this song to serve the church? Uh, and of course, CCLI sort of came along and said, no, you can do both. Uh, but, but I remember chatting with uh, Steve McPherson, who was the head of Hillsong Publishing for, for ages. And, and I, I remember him talking about the fact that when Darlene wrote Shout to the Lord, um, there was no sense in which she could make a living from that or, you know, that, that somehow that would end up, uh, yes, resourcing her. As kind a- of opening <laughs> to, I mean, globalizing their church yeah, a little yeah. bit on, under that. So I, at least from, yeah, from my my own experience of that's when I first 
Oh, that's that's Hillsong. Oh, yeah, I know, I know them now. They they wrote "Shout to the Lord." Yeah, but. yeah. So he was saying back back then, it it was something that you your primary motivation could only be uh, serving the church, and um, whereas there is a generation now who know that if they get a hit. It could set them up for the rest of their life. Royalties go on for a long time. Royalties go on for seventy years after the composers died. So, um, so are there complexities to bringing this commercial mechanism and system into worship? Absolutely. Um, I don't think, though, that it has to mean a kind of either or. Like, well, if you're signed up with a big label, then we can no longer sing your songs or or you must be tainted by uh, that r- relationship because if as you would know you know if you talk to a lot of the the writers uh, of worship songs they're genuine worshipers they're genuinely writing out of out of their own revelation and experience and and do just want to be able to encapsulate in in words that that people will want to reproduce their revelation of who God is and what he's done. And um, so, uh, yes, so I think that CCS inevitably straddle this world and and do it better or worse on occasions. Uh, What I think is nice to know is that it's not a fait accompli just because integrity or whoever, capital, back up a songwriter or a song doesn't mean that churches have to sing it and and doesn't mean that they do. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting tension. And I think yeah that you've you've had some access and even be a part of some of those conversations and I have a number of friends that are yeah a part of those kind of conversations and sat and had coffee with some of the integrity guys and others who are publishers and to know that like sometimes they back something that doesn't land. They put everything, everything in it to try to get it to work. And it just, it doesn't for lots of reasons. And other times they, I can think of one, well, she, she's made it public in a conference. Rita Springer's song Defender that kind of brought her back on was a song that the publisher, even the mega church she was at at the time said, please don't put that on the album. And that's the song that's made that, particular publisher and church and her so popular they were afraid of oh you're bringing back the head of my enemy about goliath and things (laughs) like that and so they were kind of worried about some of the theological content is it too gritty and again that song for her has been her breakout you know everybody sang it and recorded it at some point in the last five or six years and so again there's where maybe they were going to get it wrong but the artist said no this is I believe God's on this. This is the song that he's speaking to me and I think it's going to speak to our community. And so I think sometimes we can, yeah, we can, we can be too ignorant about the global forces, but we can also give them a lot more power than they actually have these global publishing forces, more, more power than they actually have. Yeah. Yeah. And that would be one of my encouragements to local churches to go, no one's well. Assuming no one's forcing you to sing a particular song, if you're a part of the those who have the authority or the, the capacity to make or to influence those decisions, well, influence them for the for the good of your congregation. Influence them with your understanding and revelation of of what a song would, what kind of song would be most helpful uh, to bring about worship for for where you are. That's really good. Uh, just just another question or two. I know we're we're coming to the end, but so many of these songs that we're talking about are coming from Pentecostal or charismatic churches or movements. Um, you've been a part of those movements. I have too in different ways and different seasons. What's maybe important to note about the worship theology of these movements? Yeah. Yeah, look, it, when I first— That's a whole other podcast uh, that sure, we should actually, do. It but, is. That sounds good. <laughs> It's been actually a concern when I first started my PhD and I started looking at the literature that was out there in this space. And one of the things that I just kept coming across was that most of the scholars were looking in from the outside, so looking from a different tradition um, into what was happening in Pentecostal charismatic context of of contemporary worship production. Um, And so 
on the one hand, those observations perhaps are free from some of the internal baggage or, or frameworks yeah, that yeah. exist. But on the other hand, they miss things because they, they can't see under the hood in the same way. Um, and so I think uh, I would often find myself quite frustrated with sources talking about contemporary worship in ways that sounded authoritative, but actually did not reflect my own experience within those contexts uh, and my own understanding of, of how songs are written or, you know, or why we produced albums or, you know, everything around contemporary worship, why we were using the music we, we were using. Um, so I, I think more Pentecostal scholars or more, more insider scholars would just bring a better balance um, so that, Yes, we can have the differing perspectives on the same, or you know, looking at the same things from from those different sides. Uh, I actually think many Pentecostal charismatic settings are not as Pentecostal as I would like them to be, and in this way. <laughs> well, actually, I mean that. Gee, that is a whole other podcast. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it, my understanding of my Pentecostal theology is that the Holy Spirit lives in me. And as Romans 8 says, it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us or enables us to, to cry, Abba, Father. So it's the Spirit that actually provides us intimacy and worship with God. So a lot of that I've read talks about kind of music, musical worship, contemporary musical worship often, as this kind of uh, this sacramental idea that it it uh, facilitates the grace of God, that it's some kind of uh, something in between uh, us as a worshipper and God. And I don't see it that way. Uh, for me, corporate worship is simply an overflow of the intimacy and experience I have with God daily. Uh, it just so happens that music is a good way to get people to do that together. <laughs> and music has these other capacities of eliciting emotions in us and, and allowing us to express things that perhaps would be harder to express without music. Uh, so for me, it's not like music is the catalyst that, uh, that, Pentecostals realized could somehow invoke the presence of God. That's not the way I see it. And, and unfortunately, I think we still have that in a lot of songs, you know, come Holy Spirit, uh, fill us afresh, baptize us again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think, well, yeah, look, I do understand where that language is coming from, but actually that's not where I'm living. Where I'm living is this is an overflow of the spirit in me wanting to express that intimacy with God uh, through in this medium. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Like that that use of even the term sacramental for music isn't a very Pentecostal word. <laughs> like to, to describe a group of people for something that most of them, not all of them, would explicitly push against. They would say, no, we have ordinances, not sacrament. Again, I, I disagree with that. I think there's sacrament of baptism and Holy Communion. Sure. But, but Pentecostals, yeah, most of them that I know in churches I've worked with and served would never use that term, don't know what it means. Yeah. And if they do, it's they know what it means to explain how they're not that yep. because there's nothing. But at the same time, yeah, music has, has been a powerful force to help um, gather those communities and, you know, uh, Nate talks about even entrainment and how mm -hmm. that connects those communities together to focus on specific things. But I think the the other thing, as you were talking, it, it reminds me is that, yeah, but a lot of the Pentecostal services and and people that I know are hoping to encounter the Spirit all the time in all places. And the testimonies that come in on a, a Sunday service might be about they're at Walmart <laughs> in line and God's Spirit is speaking. Or I remember... The Toronto Blessing came yeah. to my seminary when I was there, and there was unusual spiritual phenomenon when they were giving the announcements, yeah. <laughs> not during worship. Like, and so I, I, I think there may be an overemphasis on 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 music by some of those scholars who are outsiders. That's not to say, again, 
Pentecostals and their music and their theology of of worship are very, very deeply connected. But maybe there's been a little too much emphasis on that and kind of missing out on some of these other places, like you're saying, the spirit within us groaning, um, Abba Father, and also the spirit who breaks, hopefully breaks out on Monday morning in the office. Um family around the table or in Walmart to, to lead us to Jesus and proclaim, um, yeah, the gospel. Amen. Oh, Daniel, I love <laughs> love talking to you again. That's probably podcast two in, in a few months that we could come and, and, and do that together. But I, I'd love uh, one or two more questions. What's What's next in contemporary congregational song? We're kind of at the edge. When I interviewed Pete Ward about this from from Durham, it's like, he's like, "Well, we're all just sitting around the pool waiting to see what's <laughs> waiting to see what might be next." Well, I know you're not a a, a professor of foresight or strat, a business strategy, but you do oversee the the business department in it's some ways. True. So, what what do you think might be on on the horizon for congregational song? <laughs> Look, uh, the the challenges uh, that Hillsong have faced um, globally over the last couple of years um, have been interesting in their effect, in their impact upon uh, contemporary worship. And and I have noted um, in the last couple of years that, well, for a start, they just haven't been producing. So, so part of their sort of reinvention is is to really step back from the regular production. And and one of the things that that Hillsong was just so good at was was that the machinery that just ensured every single year you were going to have a new live worship album, you were going to have a new uh, Hillsong United album every couple of years, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so I just think it's I think that there's definitely a seasonal change in in the dominance that Hillsong has played, and and they have absolutely played. A, a, pretty dominant role. And so we see some of the, uh, you know, Elevation Church has, has stepped into some of that gap. Um, uh, Maverick City has has clearly, you know, started to have some impact. And that's kind of an interesting one because, because their songs are, you know, 12 minutes or whatever, um, which probably won't get done that way on a Sunday because, you know, even if you had people who could reproduce that, um, but but people are taking parts of those songs and just doing just doing the chorus or just doing the bridge. Uh, I think that's an interesting phenomenon of, of perhaps uh, uh, taking parts of songs instead of whole songs, which tr- typically we've done. Doing mashups, it, maybe it, with a part of the song with something else. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. Um, you know. Uh, <laughs> And Bethel, of course, have stepped into that gap as as well. Um, songs, as I've looked at the evolution of the genre over the last 30, 40 years, um, songs have gotten more complicated. So more complicated, mostly lyrically. So, um, But then there are these swings against that idea at the same time. So you've got something like What a Beautiful Name with 260 words and lyrics, and then you've got um, Great Are You, Lord, which is a just a very simple song, one verse, one chorus bridge, you know, there's only there's yeah. 87 words or something in that. Um, so I think often the, the, tr- the development or the evolution of the genre is, is pushing in, in two directions at the same time. You've got complexity, whether that's musical complexity, lyrical complexity, you've got, got these sort of pushes and you've also got people going, we know we want to move back to something simple and something we don't even need to look at the screens for. Uh, hmm. So I think those are the interesting things. I think the the production side, so um, more churches than ever are using tracks and they just, that didn't exist, you know, 10 or certainly 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, so either because they don't have the musical forces to do what they would want to do in worship. Um, and so tracks, it, it's either do they show the video on the screen and everyone worships to the video, that's a thing. Um, that's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> or do they use the tracks with the one musician they've got, we've got a guitarist, yep, yep. and now now the whole band's behind them. I think those are really interesting because, the again, the spontaneity that that I grew up with, you know, let's just, let's just sing that line over and over and over or let's just... Let's just keep singing that bridge. Or now, some of the technology is 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 sort of working with that, but often uh, people end up just singing the song to the track as it is because 
it's the track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. the way I learned it on YouTube. And that's the way I'm singing it. That's the way I'm going to sing. Uh, so I think this is an interesting dynamic. How 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 much more uh, is that going to impact? Um, d- at what point do we feel like it's too karaoke? Um, yeah. And again, these things are pushing in in both directions at the same time potentially. And is there is there this pushback to the heart of worship that you know, which there was just a conference in DC a, a month or so ago that kind of back to the heart of worship. Yeah, so like, yeah. do we do we do we overproduce? Do we do we go to the other <laughs> the other extreme of underproducing? Just acoustic guitar and some people. Even Maverick, you mentioned Maverick City. Even there's a couple new songs that are about church basement and things like that yep. that really connect very deeply with me because I'm probably same age as some of those mm-hmm. those guys where I can remember youth group. And so there's this push of what is authentic worship? Is it the beautiful produced sound? Is it the the acoustic guitar just in somebody's, you know, basement? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I still think that there's I still think that there's quite a a clear distinction between contemporary Christian music that genre and what what I've called contemporary congregational songs or contemporary worship, I, I think there's still a clear distinction, but perhaps less clear than it's ever than it's been in the past. Um, yeah. it, it, it perhaps used to be a much clearer distinction. You would have uh, those groups are the Christian performers. They they come to your church, they do a concert, uh, but then worship we do you know in in a service. Whereas you know I think now you, you've got many performers who are doing worship albums. You've got many worshipers who are doing the not congregational. Yeah. And I think one of the, the big things in that space um, was Oceans, which is another the massive song. Hillsong United came out in 2013 um, and it was a studio album. And yet that song rose, you know, so quickly through the CCLI charts because churches wanted to sing it. And so, again, uh, what's what's production What's what's performance? What's congregational? I think uh, we're still seeing that um, that evolve and and sort of where those overlaps are. I don't know if it will become indistinguishable. I don't think so because I still feel like, uh, <laughs> and we didn't even cover this, but uh, a great performer is probably going to be able to do things that the average person in the congregation can't do. Uh, and and part of your love, part of your uh, desire as an artist is to be able to do some of those things that are really cool and I love that in music. Yeah. You know? But at, at, at what point does that push into worship, uh, the worship space where it becomes unsingable? And, of course, this has been there's a, such a long history of people going, well, this is unsingable, this is unsingable. Uh, and most of that actually isn't to do with singability. It's actually to do with our existing musical preferences and, and biases. <laughs> but I still wonder where that's going, uh, because it's because if you if you go and look at a pop concert, a secular pop concert, um, often for many of their songs, which are intended for performance, not for congregational singing, uh, and yet you will have thousands of people singing along to the chorus. Um, yeah, this is, it's an interesting space, isn't it? <laughs> and sometimes very complicated lyrics. I've watched, like, this shows my my age to Sting and Dave Matthews concerts recently. And some of their lyrics, the rhythm of those lyrics for verses and bridges and choruses are extremely complicated. Melodically, they're all over the place. Rhythmically, the weird, the weird words, I mean, in beautiful ways that they, they're able to pull together is, but people, yeah, thousands of people are standing there singing, singing them at the top of their lungs, fully embodied. So I, yeah, I think there's there's some potential there. In the midst of all this kind of potential for the future and, and things you're thinking about, is there any encouragement or challenge that you'd have for those kind of in the trenches, leading worship, worship pastors, or even those who are starting to think a little more theologically about about worship? What would you challenge them or encourage them with, Daniel? Yeah, well, as both a composer and a worship leader in a local church uh, and in a, in a fairly, the church that we're currently in is is a relatively small church. You know, there's a hundred 
maybe just over 100 people there on a, on a Sunday morning, um, a relatively new church. And, and so, you know, we're not dealing with, with a lot of sophisticated gear. And, and I think often th- that's one of the things that we can grapple with that we feel like we need w- – we need in-ear monitors for our two musicians, and um, <laughs> we need the we need subwoofers for the five people who are seeing this. <laughs> we need planning center. We need iPads for the two people. We can't iPad stands. We can't do it without that. We need haze, fog machines, lights. It's not worship without all. A- yeah, and, and I, I think my encouragement is that uh, as as helpful or, or or as desirable as some of those things might be along the track um people can connect with god without any music of course uh, and even with the most simple of of instruments and and i still i don't believe that that should be an out of tune guitar played badly like you know we want to give our our best to god we want to reflect uh his his excellence and his beauty in in our music um, but, but I think, you know, I would encourage people not to be driven by some of those external factors or things that seem like they should go along, um, just because they watched it on YouTube. <laughs> um, and I think also, you know, we, we can, songs that end up being produced and, and released commercially, they've undergone such a lot of development. Uh, there's often various people who are speaking into the lyrics or, or co-writers who are, shaping and then it's got to get through the the producers and the people who are making decisions on whether that should go on the album whether it shouldn't go on the album there's all these processes in place and i think when we write songs for our own congregations um we forget we think that i've just written i've just written this song and we should sing it as a church um and uh, and forget that if we were in a context of a producing a contemporary worship producing church, there would be many processes that would make that song better, hopefully, <laughs> ideally. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and, but I really believe in local churches writing and expressing their own culture, their own revelation in song. I think it's so powerful and I wish that more local churches were doing it. But just, but just doing it with circumspectly doing it, understanding that, okay, just because I've written a song doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be the song that we sing. It, it might need some work. And you know what? We might introduce it to the congregation and it just might not work and that's okay. No, yeah. We should keep writing. We should keep expressing it, expressing our own local identity and the revelations that God's giving us because most people aren't going to remember the, the sermon that was preached last week, let alone a year ago, but they absolutely will remember that song that was just able to encapsulate, encapsulate that revelation and, uh, and sits with you for the next 20 years. Daniel, thanks. I, yeah, so thankful for your friendship, your ministry, and also your scholarship. It's been a joy to have you today. Likewise. Um, My guest has been Reverend Associate Professor Daniel Thornton, who's the head of School Pathways, Arts and Business at Alpha Crucis University College. Um, This has been the Worship Theology Podcast, a space where we're digging deep into worship and and theology. Great.